This time around, we have a script by Andre Bramanis. You know him. And Chris Black. This is actually Chris Black's final contribution to Trek, or rather, to Enterprise. I don't know if they've done anything for the new Trek stuff. This is also directed by Robert Duncan McNeil. Also his final contribution to this track, obviously, you know, to, to Enterprise, I should say. That's uh, three now of our regulars that we've said goodbye to. And again, kind of indicative of the changing of the guard that was about to happen, which we'll talk more about in, uh, I guess, two episodes at this point. This episode was nominated for an Emmy for special effects, which may sound familiar because it actually won. <laughs> Yay! They did it. <laughs> I love it that they beat themselves. Anyways, <clears throat> so let's examine the reptilian's plan. Okay, we're going to take Hoshi and bring her on board and then mind control her in order to make her decrypt the codes that we've apparently had for some time and then win? Why jump the gun on this? Why not just wait? Why not just see it be like, yes, we will agree to delay the weapon, but we demand more evidence from, you know, Archer or whatever. And then while they're doing that, have your people, who are probably a little bit more familiar with, you know, the codes and the, the language and all that, decrypt those codes. And then when you succeed and have access to the weapon, launch the weapon. The fact that they jumped the gun on this is kind of... Huh? You, whatever. This then leads to, we will torture her horribly. Because I've got faith. Uh, I'm sorry. I know that I kind of said I'd stop talking about the intro song, but it's amusing, especially in season three, where there's all these dark, horrible, you know, oh my gosh, moments during the cold open, where it's immediately cuts from Hoshi going no to the, that stupid intro song. Oh my gosh. So. This then leads to Reed, who has to report on the death of Hawkins to Hayes. Yeah. What's interesting about this scene is that there's some, in, there's some tension flaring there, but it's obviously a different type of tension, and it should be. And we'll discuss that more in a bit. But Reed is going to get some character time in this, and so is Hayes, actually, so that's some good stuff. But again, and this is part of why I'm pointing this out, you'll notice that Hawkins' death continues to be relevant. I hate to point this out. There's obviously better ways to do the death of a character than this, but if you want to kill off a random character and, you know, in a red shirty kind of a fashion, this is a good way to do it. Having it be a significant character point between two other characters who've already had dynamics between each other and have it be a sticking point in the following episode as well. That's good. I'm with it. Anyways. This then leads to Archer, who's yelling at his allies, as usual. Archer, I, I actually have very little good to say about Archer in this episode. There's one good scene he's in, like a legitimately good scene. The rest of the time, he's just kind of yelly. I know, I know. He's broken, you know, he's terrible, he's, he's, he's barely holding it together, he's having issues and everything's falling apart, so I, I get it. I'm not trying to, to lie, or not to lie, to, to um, yell, I guess, is the word I'm going for at him. I just can't help but think of other Starfleet captains that we've seen and how they would react into these circumstances, you know? Anyways, whatever. As we've already said, Archer sucks. Not in a bad way. So naturally, it's parasites! We've got to inject her brain with parasites. In so doing, we will be able to reconfigure her neural pathways. Don't worry. It, it doesn't really have any significance on anything. Other than making her compliant in order to do this is such a dumb plan. 
The aquatics continue to be the fulcrum. I've actually pointed this out before, quite a while ago. They're the ones who so much of the Zindi Nation and the Zindi Council have tilted on the axis of the aquatics. And it's mentioned several times, even in this very episode. It's just interesting that so much of this decision and what happens here leans entirely on what's going to be done by the aquatics. It's also interesting to me because the aquatics are probably the most engaging Zindi species. They're different. Most of the other species are just, you know, they're, they're people, right? And that's fine. I don't have anything against people. You know, I, I like Star Wars as much as the next person. But the aquatics are actually different. They have a cultural variance and a, and a personal bias that changes them to the point where you have to actually interact with them differently than you would just a normal person. I like that. That's good. It's cool. This then leads to Archer using the opposite tactic. This is why I said lie earlier, because I was thinking about this point. Archer has been unabashedly honest and open at every junction. And that is what's been winning him everyone. That's been winning everyone over. Except the aquatics. It just didn't work with the aquatics. So he lies. He says, we can disable the sphere network if you help me save my people. Now, you could argue if that's a lie or not. I'm not going to debate it. I think it's a lie, because at that moment, what he is doing is promising something that he is not sure he can do. It might, and he does have intention to do it. He, he does want to accomplish this action. But he's not sure he can. At the very least, this is over-promising. And there is a reek of desperation there, but it is interesting that in his desperation, he does offer the one thing the aquatics actually give a damn about. Because, well, this makes sense. I, I'm not even sure any of the writers ever thought about this. Lord knows Archer didn't think about this. The aquatics are slow, deliberate, and patient. By logical contradict or logical conclusion, I keep screwing my words today. I blame the sunstroke. By logical conclusion, that means they are long-term thinkers. They want a solution for 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. Taking out the spheres, removing the expanse, that's a long-term plan. Saving your people, destroying the, the reptilians, all of this is immediate stuff. And that's just different. Uh, now, you know, a, a balanced mind might say that there is value in the immediacy as there is value in the later you need the barracks to build the starport, after all. But the aquatics seem, from my analysis, to lean very heavily on the later. They only really care about the later. Everything else is just low priority. Thus, Archer's offer to do a very large, long-term solution to something that they've probably been considering for some time, that's what gets their attention and gets them into the immediacy. I just want to say, by the way, that I love the visual of the weapon. While Enterprise's CGI in many cases hasn't really held up all that well, it, it, it varies, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, that looks great, and sometimes it's like, okay, like the insectoids are, uh, the aquatics are pretty good, and just to use a direct contrast, I think the weapon looks great. Not just the, the, the actual visualization of it, but the design of it, the, the rotating rings and the, the, the layers of, of the sphere going down, and the fact that it's just always moving and rotating as it goes, it just, I don't know, it looks really cool. I am well impressed, and I wanted to comment on that, because we really get to see it in this episode and the next one. So, 
Dalem is in a big hurry. Oh my gosh, we need to make sure that this happens now. If only I had decided to wait and be patient and, you know, use my own agents rather than kidnap some stupid human. Not that I'm saying Hoshi is stupid, but he probably would. I'm saying his plan is stupid, and Dalem himself isn't exactly impressing me here. We also find out that Hoshi managed to sabotage them, which ended up being a good thing, because they needed every minute they could get, remember. She also tries to commit suicide to sabotage them. Interesting act. I, I hate to see this, but I almost wish she had attempted that earlier when she probably could have actually gotten away with it. But, you know, whatever. It is funny, though, that the only reason that she fails at committing suicide is because the one section she decides to jump over has railing. If you don't understand why I'm bringing that up, Look at any of the long shots of the interior of the weapon. There's no railing, like, anywhere, except for this one little section, which is where she happened to try to go over. Look, I like this episode a lot, actually, but it's it's got some issues. <clears throat> this then leads to, uh, to Paul and Tucker, who are, as usual, good to go. It's very rare they are not, and this is this is a good scene. What's really the best part, though... As he's like, I'm, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if maybe you haven't had a chance to meditate. I'm just going to get some of my work done in engineering, okay? She's like, and she calls him Trip. First time, by the way. First time she ever calls him Trip. He's just like, and she admits, I'm having trouble controlling my emotions. But what's really cool is she still can't quite bring herself to just be open about it. Instead, what she says is, and I wrote this down, it might be difficult to do to get control of emotions, especially on my own. I like that. Because what she's saying is, please don't leave me. I need your help. When this is over, I'm all ears. And she smiles just for like a millisecond. She smiles at that. Good stuff. Good stuff. Now, this then leads to Dolem. Being like, hey, so I've decided that you suck. Is there anything you can do to assist us in this matter? And what really bothers me about this scene is Dalem brings up plenty of valid reasons why the Sphere Builders should be able to help him and why the Tutorians should be getting involved in this matter. And she doesn't have any answer for that. She just does the same trick she always does with him. Don't question me. You suck. And then she goes to straight-up threats. Unless you want a future in which the reptilians are not dominant, shut the hell up. And he's like, okay, fine. I admit. I will accept being the bad guy. This leads me to a small complaint, if I might. What the heck are the abilities of the Tutarians here? They just do whatever the plot requires, is really what it boils down to. They can send back things in time, but only sometimes. And even though they could have done so a hundred other times, they don't. And you're probably thinking, well, Laura, they don't want to be caught by the other time people. Yeah, but they managed it the one time, and just because they failed once doesn't mean they're going to fail a second time. They also are able to build the spheres thousands of years in the past and slowly build more spheres because the expanse is slowly expanding, right? They're able to control the spheres across time and artificially generate these things, and yet they won't get delivered. My point is, the level of capacity they have shown to be able to interact with the past, and which they do without interference from the other temporal powers, indicates that they should have won a long time ago. 
And that's kind of my point. Because the only argument I could think of in this, and if you've got another one, please feel free, uh, is the idea that they don't want to intervene for fear of pissing off the other temporal powers, except they actively do intervene in all the ways they show they can, and with one exception, nobody ever interacts with them. So, now, the, the, the closest thing I could come up to for an actual answer here, and this is my own theory, is politics. Notice how they have to argue, and argue several times for actually activating the sphere and generating those things. You remember that? It's, this whole, it's another one of the scenes in the white va- the void. Not quite as well done as the last one, but still, you know, same style. That scene uh, seemed to indicate that there was a debate and a discussion as to whether or not they should do anything. And it was, and it was framed as if it was a last-ditch option to activate the sphere, even though it ensured their victory, or at least from their perspective. So you get the general gist that there's some kind of internal conflict slash argument, almost like a dark mirror of the council, which is preventing them from just doing things. It is also possible that this be- could be one of those international type things. So let's, let's think of each of these temporal powers as a different nation. Now, if one nation does something to another nation, well, everyone else is going to look down on that. But they're more willing to let it slide if you only do it the one time. If you do it a second time, eh, you do it a third time, you might start having intervention, and you get the idea. So it's entirely possible that they've basically used up all of their temporal incursions, and that's why they're so hesitant to do them again, because they're like, uh, we keep doing this, they're going to come down on us. That's the last thing we want. This would also explain why they only activate the sphere in desperation. Food for thought. I don't know if any of the writers actually thought of any of this, because it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't, but I just thought I'd mention it. By the way, it is probably worth noting that, for all intents and purposes, the changeover in the guard, in the creative staff, has effectively happened at this point. There would be one final episode done on the old guard. It is the next episode. But otherwise, most of the new staff were already involved on the creative process, the production process. We're already figuring out season four arcs, etc. That'll be relevant. I just wanted to mention it. Anyways, so, Reed is... Oh, no, actually, before I go to that, we get our first real comparison shot. Now, we've seen the aquatic ship before, but now we see the aquatic ship with the other ships around it. Man, that thing's a freaking cruiser, isn't it? <laughs> and then we, yeah, <clears throat> nice way to contrast there. And it actually works for once. And actually, on our side, we actually have a big ship on our side. I, when was the last time we had that? <clears throat> Reed is still very broken up over Hawkins' death. Once again, like I said, that's that's how you make that death work. Even though it's a a random guy, nobody would remember except they keep saying Hawkins. So whatever. It's it serves as a nice connecting point. Reed goes to. Uh, Hayes, and there's this moment between the two, and Reed's like, do you blame me? And he just says it honestly, and Hayes is like, no. He doesn't say no. What he says is, I blame myself. If I had been there, maybe there was something I could do. And then Reed, uh, you know, Hayes mentions, you know, we're, we've unified, we're part of the crew, we're going to get her back, everything. And it's just a good character moment between the two. And while this was, like I complained about before, I wish some of those filler episodes had been done to do more setup, do more uh, establishment for these moments, at least the payoff is pretty good. There are These are some good moments between them. This then leads to what might actually be one of the strongest moments in the episode. I don't know what's different 
It could just be that this is one of the first times Robert Duncan McNeil has actually directed uh, the three big three, uh, Trinier, uh, Blaylock, and Bakula. But the three of them actually have legitimately good chemistry together at the dinner table and actually act very well off of each other. Usually these scenes, which happened a lot back in season one, were awkward and weird. Like Trip would act well off of her or... He would act, you know, uh, Archer would act well off of Trip, and there would be like a two dynamic, and the third person would be the per- odd person out, or there'd be a guest star there who would just kind of act a little bit weird or whatever. But they've never had this level of gelling and just general good working against each other ever. I- I've I've never seen this before to date in this series, and I just wanted to give special praise to it. It's just a little scene too. It's just a moment of having dinner, you know, talking about how they're going to take them to six o two club. You know, talking about how they're going to get back to exploring. To Paul's line, there's little tidbits that show the growth that has happened over the last three years at this point. One was from To Paul. You may buy me a drink if you wish. To Paul would have never agreed to that before. And of course, Archer's high command. I actually wrote this down word for word. I wanted to make sure I got it right because I had to correct it. High command would be lucky to get you back. And he says that so earnestly because he means it. Again, contrast earlier Archer here. Think about how much praise he is just casually. It, 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 there's a camaraderie to how he's saying that. You're awesome is, is effectively what he's saying. And, and they would be le- damned lucky. Legit, le- damned. They would be legitimately damned lucky if they would get you back. And then she mentions the possibility of being with Starfleet. And of course, you know, Tucker's like, oh, please, please, let me be there to see when Saval sees that. Remember that. It's going to come up later. So, we get to the battle. As usual, I just don't actually have a lot to say about these battle sequences, except that it's actually really cool. We get a cool sense for the scale of the weapon, too, as they show the ship flying over it like it's a small moon. No, Not Death Star level, but still, this thing is rather large. We see the layers. Love the layers. They beam over the Makos. Haze goes in. They infiltrate the ship, they manage to get to Hoshi, they get to Hoshi, they call back for a beam out, doesn't work. Why doesn't the comm work? I know, we could probably explain this away, but it bothers me a little bit, because two specific things happen, which are both um, not very well written. I don't want to say badly written, but they're definitely not well written, that conspire to allow Hayes to die. This is the first thing. They have to retreat to the, the... the evacuation point, at which point they can successfully communicate, by which point the, t- the transporters have been knocked out and damaged by the the uh, distortion fields, which hadn't happened yet, so that Hayes has to be the last one leaving, and he has to be the one to die at the last second. This is also complicit with the fact that as Hayes is retreating for his final beam-out, he doesn't just hold his position. Now, I know that sounds like a strange thing, because obviously, you know, he's won against several, and with only one, they would be able to advance on him. But my point being, the only reason that he does die, because I counted the seconds, is either they could have gotten a lucky shot, possible, or because he retreated down the corridor out in the open, didn't check his corners, eyebrow raising, and then managed to get shot as he was being beamed out. This also leads me to a question. So, while we're discussing the logic of this scene... There's a bit where one of the distortion fields, so the, the Tatarians intervene. The distortion fields go out. One of them engulfs an aquatic ship and just shreks it. Why? 
Remember, the Enterprise has actually been partially in one of these distortion fields before and managed to get out with relatively no problem. And in fact, they get hit by another one and just suffer some relatively minor damage. But the aquatic ship gets absolutely shredded here. Keep in mind also, the aquatic ship probably has Trellium D on it, so why? I'm actually quite curious. Since, you know, the whole point of the Trellium D is to prevent those, and the only ship in the fleet that, that are currently present that should not have it is frickin' Enterprise, but whatever. So, Haze is shot during transport. I was debating complaining about this because this is inconsistent with how transporters are shown in future stuff. I have to think about it. A, it's not that hard or out of bounds to presume that the transporter literally works differently. Like, the very nature of how it operates is different than how it would operate in the future. Um, Riker being beamed out and the, the phase, the blast from the reactor being reflected. You remember that? Over in TNG? That might be something that was actually established or added in order to add security to the transporter beam. There's also several times when people have shot someone beaming out. It, this happened in TNG and DS9. And it's just gone right through them with no incident. It could also be this specific timing, given how, given how beaming is. It's not like you're gone and then you're there instantaneously. It's a fade and then a fade. So maybe if you shoot early enough, you can get the energy blasts in there while there's still enough matter for it to interact with before it's gone. And if you don't, it's not. Ultimately, I'm not willing to forgive it too much because it is still a bit of a problem. It is the third problem now for Hayes getting killed. It's a damn shame, too, because the Hayes death scene actually hit me. No joke. No joke. Make fun, if you want. I, I'm right here. Target. Because I, I don't even know how to explain it. Reed coming down. Hayes is there. You know, how's she doing? We brought her back. Mackenzie. She knows the team. God, that's just... That's, mm, that's such a military thing. I don't know how else to put that. That is such a military thing. And there's something about that that just evokes within me. I don't know how else to explain it. See you around, Major. This then leads to Reed. I've given praise to... I can't remember the actor's name. Yeah, I can look it up really quick. What's, what's Reed's actor's name? <laughs> I've seen him in other stuff, too. Is it Keating, that's it. Dominic Keating. I've given praise to him before and will continue to do so in the future. There's this bit where he's going into the what looks like the cargo room to go brief the Makos and get the volunteers. And as he's going in, he goes up, hesitates, takes a moment, then actually hits the door and goes in and says, Hey, so your commander's dead. Keep in mind there's an extra layer here. Because Reed has been the most antagonistic person to the Makos this entire time. And thus, Reed being the one who's like, Rawr, him being the one to have to tell them about that, just got to have that extra sting. What I like about this, though, is then he asks, I need three volunteers. Everyone steps forwards. And he has to pick three. That's a nice little touch. So, this then leads to Archer being like, I need Hoshi. This, uh, we'll talk more about this next time, maybe. Because I don't remember Hoshi being super relevant to the next episode. Do you really need to move the the just-had-her-brain-restructured Hoshi so that in a few hours you might be able to get some information that might be able to help you when you're on the weapon? I don't remember. I actually don't. Forgive me. 
So it's, it just seems like a weird additional, we do what we must, we will kill Hoshi, and we will kill Phlox, and we will kill everyone, and your little dog, too. Come here, poor fellows. We do what we must. Sorry, I'm done, I'm done. <clears throat> so then a scene happens which makes me laugh to this very day. Hey, it's the insectoids, you know. that what Everything that just happened seems to prove Archer right. So maybe we should re-examine this? And Dollum says, yeah, well, it's a good thing we already got your codes. Huh? And then what happens is Dollum surprisingly leisurely takes his time destroying the insectoid ship. Takes him like 20 seconds to finally get around to it. The whole time, the ins- I f- figured the insectoids are over there like, what? Did he say our code? Did we give him his codes already? Pfft, ah, we're being fired on! And pfft, there goes the insectoids. Good move, insectoids. I hope you enjoyed that. I only wanted to point this out, though. This is something that I've mentioned three times across this whole season. I, I forgive you if you forgot all the times I brought it up. But I kept poking at it because I knew this was coming. It's one of the advantages of knowing this stuff when it comes to ruminations. Because, um, I, I don't have a nice way to put this. The insectoids are portrayed as not bad guys. Oh, they seem to be, but there are several times when they seem to be questioning or they seem to be uncertain, and they seem to just kind of go more with the flow, or very uh, quick to make up their mind, which is actually mentioned earlier, as opposed to the reptilians who are bad guys, who have no redeeming traits, no redeeming features, never question anything, and they're just evil. This is part of the point I was making. The reptilians are the bad guys of this art, arguably even more than the Teutarians, even though the Teutarians are the actual evil jackasses who are horrifically monstrously horrible people. So, that's cool. I like one last little tidbit of this episode. Hey, Reed. Tucker goes up to Reed and says, Hey, Reed, give me a souvenir, will you? And he doesn't say it in like a light tone. It's not a, hey, go, give me a souvenir of the weapon. No. He says this because this is the thing, well, it's related to the thing, that killed his sister. Reed knows that. It was one of the, th- they had a, this conversation point multiple times quite some time ago. He is asking, Bring me back a trophy. And Reed gets it. And we once again have a nice scene between the big three. And once again, we have string continuity. Next episode will start immediately after this one. We'll have a lot to talk about next week. See you there.